this week on the Back Table Podcast. Some people dread fistulas, but in terms of 11 procedures, it's one of the few procedures in IR where you get to do kind of everything. There's access, there's wire skills, there's navigating kind of strictures and narrowing, there's plastying, there's potentially stenting, there's thrombectomy. Like, it's a pretty cool procedure, and I think you alluded to it earlier that there's a lot of problem solving involved. There's so many different considerations in terms of angles, in terms of projection, in terms of device selection, et cetera, that it really does allow you to sort of flex your wheelhouse. And that's part of the fun of it, right? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the show, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Now a quick word from our sponsor. For over 50 years, Argonne Medical has remained a dedicated partner to interventionalists through vascular and oncology product solutions that support the drive for exceptional patient outcomes. Argonne is a U.S. manufacturer and innovator that partners with healthcare providers globally to offer solutions like the Option Elite Retrievable IVC Filter, Cleaner Rotational Thrombectomy System, and the BioPense Ultra Full Core Biopsy Instrument. Argonne's continual pursuit of better has recently been demonstrated in their launches of the Kodiak Dual Port Coaxial Introducer Kit and SuperCore Advantage Semi-Automatic Biopsy Instruments. Learn more about Argonne's medical mission to improve the lives of patients and caregivers at argonmedical.com. And now back to the show. Today, we're going to be talking about declots, and we're going to be pretty heavy on the technique and procedural aspect for this episode. We've done episodes in the past about the dialysis circuit. Those are episodes 25, 117, 139, 141, and 292. We're going to link to those in the show notes. Also, check out the Backtable website for those neophytes who are interested in the declot procedure. We have a nice little procedure guide on declots. So today we have two interventional radiologists based out of Buffalo, New York. Horace just got done telling me about the lake effects. I'm in New Orleans, so I have no idea what that was. So we have uh, Dr. Omar Shohan and Dr. Horace Shingezi. Did I get it? That's it. Horace Shingezi. Nice, yep, you nice. got it. <laughs> all right, cool, cool. Um, all right, guys. So thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Can you guys just introduce yourselves and tell us about the practice? Omar, we'll start with you. All right. Um, I'm Omar Chohan. I'm an interventional radiologist out of Buffalo, New York, where we work out of Great Lakes Medical Imaging. We serve most of Buffalo, the obviously larger uh, hospital centers in town. But we you know we focus, we we touch everything, PEs, DVTs, T-clots, PAD, biopsies, drains. We're a young group. We want to do it all. That's why we brought on Dr. Nice. Chingizi because he's a, he's a dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Horace, let's get your perspective. Uh, yeah. Introduce yourself and a little bit about the practice. Yeah, I'm Horace Chingezi. I'm now, I think, in my third year out of a uh, fellowship. I trained at the University of Rochester when it was their first class of DRIR graduates. And my program director had told me, you know, out as an attending, you're going to learn more than you probably did in fellowship, at least in the first six months. And there's all sorts of opportunities out there. Go somewhere that you're going to be able to do as much IR as possible. And uh, then you can kind of figure out what you want to scale back, what you want to focus on, et cetera. And so one of the former graduates from our program was, was in this Buffalo group and I got exposed to them and they really are doing everything. You know, interventional oncology practice is big. They're doing cryos, microwaves, Y90s. We're doing PAD. 
you know, we're doing fistula creations, fistula managements, declots, venous access, ports. We do pediatrics. I'll go from a 500 gram NICU baby and getting, you know, venous access to a 96 year old end of life patient. So I really feel like this practice gives us the opportunity to experience the breadth of IR. And uh, well, I love it here. So, and th- the other sort of highlight is it's a group of young, like minded, and aggressive guys. And we're always looking to expand and we're looking for more people, but we, we have inpatient, outpatient, you know, tumor board, everywhere presence. And, and it's been going in a really positive direction for us. How many IRs are there? Five of us right now. Five? Is it a, yeah. is it a traditional IR, DR group? Like you guys are folded in with the diagnostic guys? Uh, yeah, there are probably about 25 diagnostics and then five IRs. But you know, the nice thing about it is uh, even though we're, we're folded in with the diagnostic group, we kind of lead the charge in terms of how the group is seen with hospitals. So if you look at the kind of the, the leadership of our group, it's an IR that is kind of like the interim president that's coming in. He is well, very well connected in the uh, community and the administrative side. So when people think of our group, yes, we have the diagnostic guys, but they really, really focus on the interventionalists, which is kind of nice. So even though, again, it's primarily diagnostic, a lot of the leading charge is all IR. That's awesome. Yeah, we, we operate sort of in our own little bubble and that goes along with growing the practice, et cetera. We have a full clinic. We have many PAs at multiple hospitals and two at the clinic as well. So we really are kind of, hopefully, the way that IR is heading nationwide, we're you know trying to be on the front line of that charge as well. That's awesome. Sometimes I, I keep up with the SIR forum and there's a lot of talk sometimes about the IR, DR group and group dynamics. Uh, it's, it's good to hear, like I'm in kind of a private practice group where I think IR, DR has like a really good relationship. It's good to like talk to other people who, you know, it sounds like you guys get along pretty well and you got a lot of good IR leadership. So you can kind of drive the group in like a progressive IR group with a strong clinical presence. That's awesome. I like to hear that. All right, but that's not the podcast. So we're going to be talking about declots. I don't want to get too far into procedure workup or like patient workup, but I feel like it's it's almost impossible to skip. So I wanted to like put out two scenarios and Horace, we'll start with you. But let's say like a patient comes in, but you can't know anything about them. Like I just mean that like, you know, they're in Buffalo for like a trip. They're with their aunt. They have all their care at an outside hospital that you have no affiliation with. What do you want to know about that patient day of the procedure, like if they have a down dialysis circuit? Yeah, so unfortunately, that probably happens more often. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, like, not you know? <laughs> like, that's not like this rare scenario that happens yeah. like, with some regularity. Like, Yeah, oh, we, we cover a pretty large area and there's no like central EMR group or, or whatever. So there's a lot of times we're operating in a vacuum. There's places still using paper charts. So after having a, had a complication residency, I, you know, <laughs> one of the major things that I always learn to try and check if I can is if it's a graft or what size the anastomosis is going to be. Because uh, that's, I think, very important. I've ruptured one fistula and that's something I never want to do again. But aside from that, things that I generally want to ask are when was the last successful dialysis session? What have the issues been with it before then? What the exam is like? Is there a thrill? Is there a pulse? Is it completely dead? What does the arm look like? You know, is it severely swollen? Is it less swollen? Are the bruisings? I mean, these are all questions I'm going to ask in the patient, but Issues of prolonged bleeding in the past. Have they ever had a fistula gram in the past? Is it a fistula? Is it a graft? Is it, has it ever been stented? A lot of these things I'll try to ask of the patient as a good historian, but I think pre-procedural ultrasound is probably the biggest key for me to try to problem solve and plan how I'm going to be approaching um, a DCLAP procedure. So Omar, anything to add as far as the HMP part is concerned, but then I wanted to kick it over to you and, and find out maybe what you guys are doing for that pre-procedure ultrasound? Not really. I mean, I kind of like to keep things more more simple. 
Horace that definitely goes into the nitty gritty, which is really, really good. But uh, for me, it's like, okay, what's the problem? Prolonged bleeding? Is there a throw? And then I'll kind of just, we'll bring the patient in and, and figure it out. It's always easier to do that than it is to sort of like pull apart some of the H&P. But yeah, I'm, I, that's kind of how I would approach it. Are you a fan of the pre-procedure ultrasound, like in the pre-op area? I Yeah, I do like to see at least what's going on. I mean, I've had grass, I've had the fistulas, I had declotted. So I like to know at least if I can at least anticipate the potential flow direction, especially how, if, if you have a sensation before that too, just to see what's inside the graft or what's inside the, the fistula. I'll do TPA occasionally beforehand and then... It's nice to see things kind of dissolve live on the ultrasound. Nice. Horace, what are you looking for for the pre-procedure ultrasound? Yeah, so if I know it's a completely thrombosed graft or, or fistula, then I do like, before even bringing the patient into the room, getting some TPA into it, I'll, you know, just inject, you know, clean with alcohol and inject TPA directly into multiple spots. And that's actually been pretty effective because one of the downsides, I think, in many IR practices is you can be pressed for time and Waiting for the TPA to really do its job can be uh, a limiting factor and nobody likes waiting around. So if it's completely thrombosed, I'll try to do that. But once the patient's in the room and I'm kind of making a decision on on access points, et cetera, I'm thinking, okay, do I need to go both directions? Do I need two sheets? How big does the actual fistula look? So I can kind of plan my sheet sizes and balloon sizes, et cetera. I always try to get a good anastomotic shot. Yeah, it gives me a good sense of the angle that the anastomosis is coming off of, which can be helpful in planning craniocaudal rotations of the II so that you can really profile that effectively. And then looking for areas of aneurysms, areas that you may not want to access, areas that may actually be more stenotic than other areas where you want to want to make sure if you've got good purchase with your sheet, that you're going to be able to treat those effectively. And then one of the other things like I kind of alluded to this is, you know, one access or two access. If I'm really suspecting only an outflow problem and the the actual anastomosis itself looks open, I may choose a proximal just towards venous outflow access. If it looks like I'm kind of unclear about one side or the other, but it's primarily an outflow problem, one of my mentors actually taught me a sort of perpendicular access approach where you can access and kind of treat one direction and then flip the access and go the other way, which is kind of slick because you only have one site to close. I think there's less risk of developing aneurysms and that sort of problem from that. And then, of course, there's other times where you just can't avoid it and you got to get an antigrade and retrograde access. And so the final point for all of that ultrasound is I do like to use a skin marking pen so that my techs, et cetera, know exactly where they need to clean, where I'm potentially planning access and which way I'm primarily going to be working in terms of my wire direction. So that you're not running into that awkward environment where you're like flicking the patient in the nose with a wire, you're standing over here and trying to flip things around. So all of that, you know, I think really helps allow you to do these procedures efficiently. So you guys both referenced it, like the TPA and the holding area. Omar, I'm interested how much TPA, how far before the procedure, like this isn't something that's part of my practice, how many injection spots or, yeah. you know, like what, what's... The times that I've done it, usually the patient is in a little holding area, it's not in the lab yet. Say they come from the ER, they go up to the holding area, I'll kind of feel for, get an idea of what's going on. I'll do about four to five milligrams of TPA throughout the circuit. And, and I'll, let's say if it's a loop graft, I'll do the apex, I'll do the distal and proximal. And if it's in, you know, if it's maybe fistula, I'll see where exactly it's secluded. I'll just sort of try to do some, at least three spots just to sort of like coat it a little bit. Sometimes you do have to be careful though, because you can technically push clot through the arterial anastomosis and you do risk going out there. So what I have done, I've just sort of compressed at the anastomosis to prevent it from going across the anastomosis and down the artery. That way you don't have any kind of radial ischemia or anything like that. 
And then whenever you're accessing, is it just like a little 25 gauge or 22 gauge? Yeah, needle? I mean, it's a tiny, whatever the nurse is giving me, if it's 25, 21 gauge. Um, <laughs> whatever someone hates yeah. you. As long as it's not like an 18 gauge, you're like, no, it's too big. Sure. <laughs> okay. All right. So Horace kind of touched on it. And so we'll kick it back over to you, Horace. So we're going to be talking declot. So this isn't going to be like, you know, prolonged bleeding or there's still a thrill. So this is totally dead. And it, it can be official or a graft. We might have to like cycle in and out if there's some nuances between the two. But I'm interested in access, whether you use ultrasound and single access, dual access. And I know it depends a little bit. So, you know, kind of like paint us a picture about maybe typical or most common. Yeah. So, I mean, typical, most common, I'm almost always treating the venous outflow side first. If I get a really good sense on that pre-procedure ultrasound that the anastomosis is open, I see some color flow filling into the proximal anastomosis, and then the clot isn't really into where the vein is starting to dilate a little bit more, then pretty much access as close to the arterial anastomosis as I can. I find that even if you leave a little bit of clot behind your access point, once you open up the majority of the obstruction or the, the, of the clot, then, then even that little bit of plug can wash out sometimes especially if you've given some TPA to soften it. So basically I'll access typical declot. I idea is going to be access as proximal as possible. Use uh, some sort of glide wire uh, and angled catheter to navigate through the thrombus and get central until I'm in patent vein with a puff. And then typically I'll start with doing a, a pullback sort of venogram to try and get a sense of where the problem really starts. You know, where is their thrombus? What's the extent of the thrombus? And if I can, you know, get good contrast in there, get, kind of get a size of the of the veins, et cetera, that we're working with. That's kind of the step at which I originally started doing some TPA is like, you, you know, do that pullback and then and then kind of reaccess again and then just use that same angled catheter and dilute some TPA in, in 10 cc's of saline and then basically puff and pull back some TPA and try to break up or soften the clot as much as possible that way. And that's kind of where we started doing it pre-procedurally. But once I have an idea of where all the thrombus is, then you get to the fun of it, which is starting to open things up. Okay. Omar, anything different? I typically just do like a dual access. When I'm usually planning, I get the short sheets. I just make sure that they do crisscross a little bit, but there is at least a little bit of overlap just to make sure you can at least cover the entire circuit without any kind of gap. I know some people do like radial access or they try to do like a single access, but and for me, I just feel like I get a cleaner outcome if I just do dual sheets. When I'm done with one side, I'll take one sheet out, kind of do a like a woggle or a figure of eight closure for one side, and then I'll take care of the rest. I'll just get straight up, get ready for both. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's some efficiency in that. Like if you're going to, you already have the ultrasound machine out, like, or, you know, you're already kind of in access mode. Yeah. So you just get both sheets. Well, we'll start with Omar. Sheet size. Do you start out like venous side and then arterial side? I'll start with just the inner of a micropuncture, just to sort of, because, I mean, I'm assuming this is yeah, truly declotted, right? But I'll just, I'll start with the low profile sheath, the inner, do a venogram, I'll do an occlusion shot and then I'll upsize just to get an idea of if there's a certain spot you don't want to stick or not with the venogram. So I'll do uh, one micropuncture first, and then I'll make sure I get an asthmatic shot if I can. But if it's declawed, it's going to be tough. And then I'll just get my second access the opposite direction. But I'll usually, then I'll go to like a five French sheath until I know what kind of stuff I need. For the most part, seven French sheath because usually the largest I'll go. Do you put in both sheaths off the get-go? Yeah. Because sometimes I encounter situations with dual sheaths where, you know, you have a tight spot and it can make it tricky to treat when you have that second sheath. And I've, I've encountered situations in which the second sheath can actually be near occlusive and kind of compromise the imaging at times. So that's why oftentimes I, I start with one sheath and kind of keep the, the ultrasound on, on backup and access separately to treat. Usually I'm just pulling a plug at the inflow most commonly, not, not usually plastying unless there's really a, a severe problem there. 
And so I find that for me, maybe a little bit less efficient, but I think it allows me to treat the fistula more accurately, you know, less spasm on the outflow side, less, and, and just giving myself more room to work with the balloon, et cetera, um, when I'm working towards the central. Yeah. Also totally reasonable. Yeah. I think one of my partners uh, yeah. does it a little bit similar to that. I'll jump in here and put a little color commentary for me. Like I, I do run into that, that problem, but you just kind of work around it. And then sometimes it's a situation where I'm like, well, I think the, the sheath is really part of the issue. And so when I get to the end, I'm just like, all right, I pull that sheath and then put the woggle on. And then I might like plasty it just one more time. But you know, I like, I, it's like each, like, that's an interesting thing to me about declots. It's like each person has their own way, but each way that they choose get, requires you to solve problems a little bit differently. You know what I mean? Like, the, mm-hmm. like if you do dual access right off the bat, then there's some things that you have to get over that if you do one sheath at a time that you don't have to solve for. All right, so we've got access. Horace, back over to you. You talked about the central run. Like you do, you get a, a catheter in, you do a central run. What are you looking for? Yeah, I'm just looking for any central stenosis, really, because that, on that initial shot, that'll help me plan my sheath size. Because if there is a problem kind of at the, the innominate vein or SVC, then sometimes I may want to play something like an eight French sheath so I can fit like a 12 or 14 balloon in. If there really isn't that, then it can help me minimize my sheath size. If everything's sort of occluded up to the axilla and the cephalic arch and central veins look okay, then typically, you know, the arm, you're not going bigger than, you know, eight to 10 millimeters most commonly. Um, and so that's really. Uh, the, the key there for me. Do you treat the central stenosis right after you do the venogram or do you wait to treat that at the end after you've like cleaned everything up on the day clot side? It depends on how the flow is. I mean, if there's a, a, a clear central stenosis, but it's flowing pretty good, then I, I may leave it alone till the end. But if it's severe and everything behind it is shut down, then then yeah, uh, that may be the first thing that I touch. Omar, similar? Yeah, I guess it depends on the flow. For me, I would do my best to sort of just take out the clot of the circuit of the fistula, whatever it is. And then I'll do my central, you know, venogram to see if there is any kind of stenosis. If the flow is really bad, then yeah, I'll balloon it up. If there is something that leaves that full, I mean, I'll leave it alone. That's pretty much how I'd approach it. Can I chime in with one thing here? Cause we, we haven't brought this up yet and I think it's very relevant. So in training, one of the things that we heard for declots was if you're spending more than an hour on a declot, either that's a bad fistula or you're doing something wrong. And I've had a couple of situations and, you know, this for all the trainees and everybody else, don't forget to heparinize, you know, once you get your access in, make sure you got a good dose of heparin in there as well. Because otherwise, whatever you do in a low flow environment until you've effectively treated it all, will keep shutting down again. And, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit that I've done that myself, but it has happened. And I think it's one of those simple things that are easy to overlook if, if you're not thinking about it. Well put. So actually, it's on the outline to talk about like heparinization or like anticoagulation. Omar, for you, when do you uh, give heparin and how much do you give? Like, do you have a formula or you just kind of eyeball it? I don't have been given heparin in my declots. <laughs> I guess I oh, really? Heparin. You don't get heparin to your declots? No, I mean, every, all the declots that I've done, I've usually done is there's some TPA and then there's just a little bit of, you know, make sure the flow is good. For me, for the most part, these renal patients are kind of already uremic in some degree, so the plates don't really adhere very well. I'm a, I'm a believer in that. I haven't ran issues where, you know, I start to plasty and there's a new clot forming, so... Knock on wood, I've been lucky there, but I haven't, I haven't needed to give heparin yet. So maybe it's hap- is gonna, it's about to happen one of these days since I've been asked now, but I haven't given heparin. <laughs> All right. See, this is what I like about declots. I mean, like there's so many different ways to attack it and like everyone's mm-hmm. got their own efficiencies. Everyone's got their own secrets. Aris, over yeah. to you. Um, since, since Omar doesn't do any <laughs> heparin, um, ask 10 different IRs, you'll get 10 different techniques, right? Yeah. Like, so when are, when are you giving the heparin and what's your dose? I'm giving the heparin after I've done that first pullback venogram and I've decided on my sheath size. 
And then usually, depending on the size of the patient and the extent of the clot, it's going to be somewhere between three and 5,000 units. Yeah. Okay. Real quick, while we're on anticoagulation, do you re-up your anticoagulation at the end of the procedure or is that it's like a one and done? You've given 4,000 units of heparin and that's all that you're going to give throughout the... Probably all that I'm going to give, kind of going back to that mindset of if I'm spending longer than that doing a declot, then there's something else wrong and I don't know if the heparin's going to change it. Okay. All right. So we've talked about uh, heparinization. TPA, you guys kind of already mentioned that you give TPA pre-procedure, so we'll pass that. So there's different ways to kind of take care of clot. I'll leave it a little bit caveat there for the for the TPA is it's not an always pre-procedure kind of thing. It you know, for me it depends on the flow of the day. You know, like if the patients come in, you know, sometimes we'll get a nephrology center that'll call us. They've got this add-on declot. The patient didn't get dialysis for 2 days, but you know, I'm doing whatever else I'm doing for the day. If the patient's going to have to wait a little bit, then I find that it's helpful to give the TPA, but if we can roll and get the patient in the room right off the bat, then oftentimes I'll go in without the pre-procedure TPA. And it will be more an early step, you know, rather than beforehand. So like then you'll lay down that TPA is like you're doing the pullback. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. So without waiting for it to work, (laughs) you know, (laughs) well, you know, some of the, some of it it worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. So talking about different ways to deal with clot, Omar, I'll ask you. So once you have your access and maybe with uh, after your pullback venogram, what are your next steps? Like, are you looking to treat outflow stenosis or do you treat clot and then address the outflow? And then how do you do both of those things? I try to clean up most of the clot so at least I can start to mm-hmm. visualize either underlying stenosis and then at least I can start to treat the, uh, the either as a plug or something as anastomosis or if there's something blocking the outflow. So I try to clean up as much as I can of whatever acute clots there and, and identify the underlying issue. What I use, I'm a big tech person, so I'll use whatever, like either new stuff or like whatever is around that I've done, AngioJet, Penumbra, Cleaner, all that stuff. I like all the... I, What's your go-to? If it's all op- or it's all available, you can use whatever. I mean, I like, I like Penumbra's system. It's pretty good because you can get stuff through it if you need to, if you can always go coaxial. You can put the cleaner through it too, and I think that's a pretty slick thing to do is get the cleaner through the Penumbra and start to just get a nice wall-to-wall opposition and aspirate at the same time. I mean, it gets kind of pricey for some people, but we're in the hospital, so uh, it's... <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever gets the job done. But anyway, I, I find it entertaining, you know, and Alahar is going to talk about what he's, his experiences has been, but that I again, I like to use the Penumbra and the cleaner, at least the top two, and Jojet, and I'll, I'll, I'll use that every now and then if I get something that's might need a little bit more of maybe some hydrodissection or some saline spray. Horace, what do you like? So I, I'm pretty much always using a combination of Plasti and Cleaner. Um, those are my preferred. I think they they tend to be, you know, AngioJet, uh, I think works well. But, you know, the TPA beforehand, I think, does a good job of lacing a, a clot. And I think just setup wise, et cetera, for the room, for the text, so you got multiple bags you got to fill, et cetera. It's just it, it can be a little bit cumbersome. I've never used Penumbra and Officula. You know, I don't know if that's partly because of the mindset is most oftentimes these patients are coming with truly relatively acute clot, right? They're probably getting dialysis three times a week and they're coming after they have a problem with dialysis. So at most, I'm thinking the clot is two days old, right? Relatively on the more acute side. So my philosophy has always been reestablishing flow and breaking up that acute clot allows the body's autolysis pathway to, to sort of uh, do its job and clean it up. And I was talking about this with some trainees and they're asking, you know, aren't you worried about all that clot going to the lungs? And it's like, I've done 
I don't know how many D-clots at this point, and I've never had somebody have respiratory compromise afterwards. So I think if you if you break up that clot and you get it into the larger veins of the pulmonary arteries, et cetera, the endogenous, you know, plasmogen, et cetera, does its, does its job. So really my goal is to establish flow and break up that clot as much as possible. So the plasty, I think, does a good job of, of establishing that initial flow and really giving you a sense of what the underlying problem may be. But I really like cleaner because it's something that's very easy to use. It's relatively cheaper than the other options, and you can see it very well under ultrasound. So I feel like I can minimize my contrast runs and I can minimize my radiation dose to myself um, because I can visualize the device very well under ultrasound. And I think it also allows the added benefit of being able to sort of compress and target your treatment with mechanical feedback on what's happening. So you're talking about like um, massaging which, the the graft or the yeah, fistula so, as you're going through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Exactly. So I'll, I'll use, I'll use the, I keep that linear probe prep for the whole case because sometimes I know I mean, I may need to access retrograde. And so if it's a larger fistula, you know, there's an area of aneurysm, et cetera, I'll actually compress on the cleaner device and, and kind of use different angles and try to break up the clot more that way. And that's been very effective for me. So, but going back to, like you said, plasty and cleaner, when do you plasty? When do you use the cleaner? Like, like in what order, in what sequence do you do both of those, those steps? Yeah, usually it's plasty first, then cleaner. Okay, so when you're plasting, you're thinking balloon maceration, then you're also treating the stenosis or? Yeah, no, really it's balloon maceration initially and establish some flow to get a sense. So usually based off of the pre-procedure ultrasound, et cetera, I'm going with like my standard would be eight millimeter balloon. Um, unless it's a graft, in which case you may want to go smaller because some of the grafts may be smaller in size. But general rule of thumb, I'm accessing towards the venous outflow. I'm getting my central venogram. I got a wire down into the IVC, so I've got something reliable for the whole time. And then I go in with an eight millimeter balloon and I kind of just plasty as far back as I can. And then I just do another shot to see what I'm working with. And then the next step, rather than upsizing the balloon, I'll go to using the cleaner device because it's got a larger throw than any of those balloons, but is relatively less traumatic in my eyes because it'll deform to an area of, of stenosis as opposed to potentially risk rupturing a fistula or tearing you know, the vein or whatever. So plasty with the eight, cleaner up, and then I kind of do a pullback pass with the cleaner, usually a second pass as well, and then you know really kind of assess flow. If I'm seeing flow at that point and it looks pretty brisk, then I can get a really good fistula gram and identify what the underlying problem was. If I still don't have flow at that point, then I know I probably still need to clean out my arterial inflow side. And that's kind of where I make the decision of if I'm going to go retrograde and pull out the plug or not. All right. So Omar, over to you. So like we're at the same point in the procedure where you've done some outflow work, but then it's time to work on the inflow. So I'll just start out with when you're doing your run from the inflow, what are you looking for? And then what do you do next? I mean, from the inflow, I mean, looking for any kind of stenosis, looking for your plug, any kind of residual clot, anything that can be causing any kind of hang up to wire flow shorts. But for what I'll typically do, guys, okay, I still try to work on any kind of the acute clot, any kind of any resistant clot. So it's either going to be a combination cleaner. If I have the penumbra, I'll try to use that, see if I can use compress. And sometimes you can core the penumbra too. You can kind of just push it forward and see if you're going to eat up some clot that can help to kind of loosen some stuff up. I will plasty if it's a graft, you know, so usually eight millimeters, so you can just plasty with an eight. I do like Boston's new stuff, the athletics balloons. They're pretty good and kind of like maintain the shape. They're still high pressure balloons. Like usually that's kind of what I'll do. I'll get a forward if I have to take out any of the, the, the plug and the arterial side and see if that helps. But usually kind of what I'm looking for, anything that's left over. And if I have the cleaner out, the cleaner is pretty good to, to at least take care of anything that's left. So you do your run, you know that there's something you have to clean up, you'll pull the plug. And then after that, it may be like a penumbra run or in, or a plasty, just depending on what you see. 
Yeah, I mean, it all, all kind of depends on what what I'm looking at. I kind of I kind of think it's always hard to like you know discuss these things sometimes. There's so many variabilities when it comes to declots, but you know if there's like a residual stenosis, I'll, I'll try to plastic that first. If there is looks like it's a free floating clot and just kind of like flapping in, in the breeze, I'll I'll take out the penumbra, take it out. If there's something that looks more wall adherent and it's, it looks like it could be just a, some intimal hyperplasia or something that the cleaner can grab and just sort of smooth it out, I'll, I'll take that out and see if it can abrase it out. Okay. Horace, over to you. Once you, you've kind of worked on your outflow and now you have access into you know the brachial artery, you do your run, what are you looking for? And then what are you using to treat? Yeah. So, you know, access into the brachial. So once I've treated the venous side, I'll look with ultrasound to see, you know, do I see really bad slow flow? You can kind of get that gray kind of wispy sensation, or you can see, hey, this looks pretty, you know, nice, clear, black, pressable, and, you know, everything looks good. So then we're moving on to the arterial side and teaching for me was always to try and access the brachial artery, you know, retrograde fashion. So I'll take my time and try to use an angled catheter to get up the arm, use, you know, a softer wire like a Benson or something for reliable access. And then usually the first step is just a hand inflated Fogarty balloon, allow it to deform across the anastomosis. And I'll just default to doing two passes before I get my comfy catheter back into the brachial artery and then do a run from there uh, directly. That kind of does highlight part of why I like to use heparin for these cases is because I think when crossing that arterial anastomosis, then also manipulating your wires in the arteries, I, I just, out of the abundance of precaution, don't want to send any clot down the hand. Now, we talked about it probably being acute clot and probably not being problematic, but I think 3,000 units of heparin is generally pretty safe and, and well-tolerated, so it's not something that I, I worry about too much. And then after those after those two sort of Fogarty passes, I'm jumping all over here in terms of decision-making because like Omar said, that every case is so different and you're trying to read things on the fly, but get my catheter into that brachial artery. I kind of use that angle that, you know, that pre-procedure ultrasound oftentimes help me with in terms of where I'm rotating the arm and where I'm rotating the eye. And then I really try to get a really good profile of the anastomosis. And I think that's something that you don't want to sleep on because oftentimes these stenoses at, at the arterial anastomotic site can be very, very projectional and you may not pick it up unless you're you're right on the money. So get into the brachial artery, profile the anastomosis, squirt some contrast, then kind of make a decision. If I'm treating a stenosis at the arterial anastomosis, you know, from experience and I have that patient from out of town that doesn't know exactly, I don't have their operative notes, I can't review anything. Generally, I'll start with like a four by 20 millimeter balloon and see how that responds. A lot of graphs that were used, you know, where I trained, and this may be different, you know, uh, local regionally across the country, but there would be, you know, a four to seven sort of tapered anastomosis. So I think a four millimeter balloon is a good place to start for those as well. And then you can always upsize for the inflow if there's a problem elsewhere um, as needed. So whenever you're treating the arterial anastomosis stenosis, can you talk? Say that three times fast. Yeah, right. That's a tough. <laughs> that's a tough one. So whenever you're treating the arterial anastomosis stenosis, you're doing like a four millimeter. Yeah, I just want to see if I can do it. Um, so using <laughs> that four millimeter balloon, like a four by twenty. In my experience, you have to have a lot of respect for the arterial anastomosis. This is where, like, I've seen people go wrong in that you're kind of on the tail end. You sometimes perfect is the enemy of good, and that you go to treat that anastomosis, and I've seen like fistulas go down when people are treating that JA segment. Either has that been a year experience or can you talk about like the respect that maybe is due for something that near the, the arterial anastomosis that maybe like you have to be a little bit gentler and kinder there, like relative like your outflow? Yeah, I think that's why starting with a Fogarty is always important and then and getting another run. I, I like doing the run from the artery because I think it gives you a, a, a better look overall and go small first and gently upsize. Oftentimes I'll actually won't even use a balloon insufflator. 
and just do it with a medallion by hand so that I can really, uh, you know, it takes feel and it takes getting used to it, but using, you know, so it's only a, a four by 20 millimeter balloon. So you can use a smaller medallion syringe to insufflate it. And I think that gives you more feedback. Trying to do it with a 20 can just kill your palm and be very painful. But I think that does have some value and it allows you to sort of modulate just like with the Fogarty. Okay. One of the other things I'll add about like doing the run from the brachial, this was something that was just kind of drilled into us. You're not just looking like at the dialysis circuit. You're also looking, you're looking at inflow. You're also looking at outflow. And so a lot of times like, you want to maximize your imaging of the dialysis circuit. But for actually when my catheter's in the brachial artery, I'll include a little bit more of the forearm, assuming like, you know, you have a seminofistula, only because whenever you do shoot something down the arm, if that ever happens to you, it's nice to have that pre-run where you showed that, hey, even before like I was doing a lot of manipulation, I had good inflow and outflow. And it's kind of like before you started working on that arterial anastomosis. Just something to think about. That's a really good point. And I think that's another thing where, you know, you want to optimize flow through a fistula as much as possible. But then you also have to consider the possibility of steel syndrome as well if you overtreat. So that's, that's a, a very good thing to always keep in the back of your mind. One of the other things I wanted to drill down on is you mentioned like whenever you're treating outflow, you have a wire in the IVC. Is that standard practice for you also, Omar? Do you get your wire all the way down? Once I am ready to do see like a central shot or if I need to work out the central venous system, I'll get a wire as far, at least down the IVC. But if I'm just working in like, you know, a forearm fistula or something more on the arm, if the wire is out hanging subclaving vein or at least the high rest you see, it's kind of, it's fine by me as long as I have good wire control. That's actually a good question for Harston. So yeah, if you're working in a, a wrist fistula, radial artery, are you going to get your wire all the way down the IVC? Not necessarily all the way down the IVC, but definitely at least into the SVC. I like having wire access across the whole circuit. And I think the the wire management aspect is a big piece, but sometimes there's a little clot on the wire and it pulls back a little further. And it's not really an issue in terms of reselection, like when you're working in the PAD space and you got a CTO or whatever. The bigger thing for me is if I do need to be aggressive with plasty or I'm upsizing a balloon, I'm going with a balloon that the patient's never you know, had before. I'm using a cutting balloon because there's a really resistant stenosis, et cetera. Then my, as an IR, you always got to think of, I don't have the surgical option for bailout, right? So I want to make sure that I can treat everything. And so the worst thing that could happen is your wire pulls back, you've got a rupture and then you can't reselect centrally and then, and then you're kind of done. So having a longer wire and having it as central as possible, I think is just a fail safe for comfort purposes. And then just as a technique sort of highlight, another thing that oftentimes I'll do is rather than pull my balloon out every time, this is time savings, but it's also a safety thing is, you know, for my interval runs, I'll use that wire to put my balloon down into the IVC or central SVC so that I, if I do a venogram and I see a rupture, or I see an extrav, then I can pull back and I can put the balloon up immediately. I don't have to worry about, you know, getting it off the back table and doing all that. All right. Well said. I just want to drill down on that for our audience real quick. So in this situation, you've done a plasty. Instead of taking the balloon out of the circuit, you just push it forward a little bit. You do your run. You see extra. You can just pull that balloon back a little bit real quickly, blow it up, and get, basically get control and get your options available to you. Yeah, that's very slick. Yeah, don't take the balloon off the wire. Yeah, that's actually what I do. So I, I often don't keep the balloon inside. Like I'll, I'll take the balloon out of the sheath, but it, like my techs are always like, they're always ready to get the next thing, but like I'll grab the balloon. I'll know, I'm like, no, keep it right here. <laughs> and mm-hmm. yeah, is that what you do, Omar? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're always ready to like take the balloon out. I was like, wait, hold on one second. We just, and it's like, we don't want an extra. So. Yeah, like just give yeah. it one second. Yeah, yeah. They, exactly. they can't take it out if you push it central. So. This is true. <laughs> yeah. This is true. I, I think, I think both are pretty good practices. Yeah. What, but what is not good is like to take the balloon out and then take it off the wire and then do your run. Right. right. I think we mm-hmm. can agree on that. Mm-hmm. All right. So, 
you kind of mentioned it, Horace, but I also want to get to UMR. So we're still in the declot realm. How often are you moving from like a high pressure balloon to something like a cutting balloon or something a little bit more specialized like stenosis? Not, I don't really use the cutting balloons a whole lot. They kind of make me a little bit, a little shy. I mean, I've seen, I've seen some bad mishaps with the cutting balloon, but I, I'll typically with the arteriosclerosis, I'm, I'm pretty ginger there. I don't like to do too much like heroic stuff. But I run a fogre across to get to get the, the, the plug out. I'll do a little gentle angioplasty, clean it up. But for me, it's like if I were to declod the entire circuit, I'm just, I'm left with the arteriosclerosis, and I, the choice is do I use a high pressure cutting balloon? At that point, I just look at the flow rates. I feel for the thrill. I mean, if they started with nothing and they got a throw and it looks like the flow is pretty good and there's just a little bit that's left and it might be a little stenosis, then, you know, the enemy of good is better. So I usually just like, we're, I think we're pretty good there. But if I do have a resistance stenosis that's not at the anastomosis, I'll, I have used the athletic balloons or high pressure balloons they, and they, they do pretty good. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't like to use cutting balloons. Okay. Taurus, what about you? Yeah, so I've never used a cutting balloon on the inflow side. I have used them on, on the outflow side. And then, you know, I guess the question always, this goes back to the history portion. How often has this fistula been, been clotting? Has this ever happened before? What's the highest pressure I've been able to insufflate to and in the, in the stenosis is still resistant? And then, you know, what's the location of this issue? Because ultimately, you know, a cutting balloon is you're deciding between trying to treat with just plasty versus stenting, you know? So if it's in a location that the stent's going to be problematic, then I may be more aggressive with using something like a cutting balloon. But generally, it is a relatively last resort sort of option for me. And more often than not, I think one of the, the good techniques to just be aware of is you don't want to just plasty once and then be done. Most of the time, I'm not using the highest pressure balloons, although the athletic balloons are very good. They give you a lot of control. They go up to like, I think, 30, 31 atmospheres um, pressure on the eight millimeter size. And I think it's 24 or something on the on the 10 millimeter size, whatever it is. You should check the sheet. But a good technique is multiple insufflations over the same spot and making sure that you're really centered so that the centermost portion of your balloon is on that resistance stenosis. So I'll take a balloon up to burst pressure let it down, immediately take it back up, let it down, do that three, four, five times. And I find that's oftentimes very effective. And if I can't get a stenosis like that to open up after three to five insufflations with a high pressure balloon, and it's in a location that I don't want to stent, then yeah, I, I would go to a, a cutting balloon. Okay. First statement. So this is kind of getting, it's a tough question to ask and it can be very variable, but the question is kind of like, when are you done? And really what I'm trying to get at is, Sometimes there's like residual clot that's left over either in a graft or a fistula. And I just want to get kind of like the general sense of when do you call it good? This this fistula is going to fly. Omar, start with you. End point. Uh, I've had my staff be like, yo, we're done. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. It's been an hour. We're done. Um, now, you, again, usually it's kind of like what I was talking about earlier. It's you've done clean, you've done predominant, you've done plasty, you know, everything you've, you could possibly have tried to like, okay. Like we're at a point where not much more is doing anything more than you want. And that, and, but you got good flow, you, you're better than where you were before. You can at least see the graph and there's no more clots, but that's where I just go to. Let me just feel this fistula. Is it pulsatile? Then we still got an issue. Is it that we got a thrill? That's pretty good. We didn't have a thrill before. And again, if we're running into, into the part into technical issues where we just can't get anything more done, but we got a thrill and then I'm like, okay, things are done. So I think it becomes more of like a physical exam endpoint really more so than an angiographic endpoint because I mean sometimes these circuits are just horrible. They got aneurysms, they got real thrombus. I mean you could try to make it look pretty. That might make you need more hardware, stents, grass, whatever. But do you really need that? All right. Horace, same question over to you. Endpoint. Yeah, endpoint, I mean clinical exam I think trumps all. 
if it's if it's a relatively softer fistula with a good thrill, you're probably good. You know, I think that's a good endpoint. Um, I think that our cap is is a soft cap that I hold for myself. I mean, if I'm moving quickly and I think I'm really you know doing a good job, then I think beyond an hour, there's a point of diminishing returns. And it goes back to that pre-procedure evaluation again. Every patient that comes in for a declot also gets consented for uh, central venous line placement, so that you know you can kind of just switch over and do that. And depending on if the patient's inpatient or outpatient, I'd make a decision on a non-tunneled line and send them to dialysis versus a tunnel central line. But you know, if if you're just rethrombosing, not getting a good exam, then you know really talk to that patient that they may need surgical evaluation or or mapping, etc., and and place a something so that they can at least get their dialysis because that's the priority. I guess the the line of questioning that I'm trying to get at though is how how perfect do you want your fistulagram to look at the end of the procedure? You kind of said you know the physical exam trumps all, and then after that, what I'm really looking for is like flow. Like, do I see like brisk clearance of the mm-hmm. contrast? And, and so that's what I was kind of getting at. Yeah, and you got to be aware of what your frame rate and everything is because you know if you inject and it's gone, you're good. But that's also probably the fistula that has a has a good throw. Yeah, I look at kind of what the arteries are doing too. Like if you open up your shield of view and you got, you're looking down the radial artery and the hand, if you have washout that's the same across the venous, the outflow and the artery, that's good for me. And if there is a little bit of a hang up, that's okay. But if there really is some stagnant flow across your graft and the arteries have washed out, there's a problem. Awesome. Awesome point. Yeah, I agree. All right. Stinting. We don't have to like get too far into it. How many of your declots are leaving with metal or is it infrequent part of the practice? Omar, start with you. I haven't stented my D-clots. I usually try to plasty. It has, has done pretty well. The only times it really stented a D-clot was uh, there was a pseudoaneurysm. It was just sort of, it was hanging up a lot of the flow. And so I would put a vibe on there. But I really tried not to leave anything behind. Okay. Horace, same question. Yeah, I err on the side of not stenting as well. Recently, I had one case where I opened it up. Everything looked good. There was a bit of a stenosis that was resistant, but the flow looked brisk on the angiogram. And I actually had to bring that patient back same day, because I think they tried to access right around where that stenosis was and, the, and, and, and it shut down again. But the teaching for me was, was kind of, you give plasty a shot twice and then stent on the third time. Now, in a patient that you don't know what the history is, I'd err on the side of not stenting first. But usually, you know, I'll establish a clinical follow-up with these patients, usually a month out, make sure their dialysis is still going well, and uh, just keep an eye on them that way. Okay, fair. All right, so... Official looks good. Good thrill. Looks like contrast is moving pretty quickly through the circuit. What do you guys do for closure? Horace, start with you. It depends on how I've accessed. Uh, I, I didn't really talk about the technique for that that 90 degree access, but I'll, I'll just go into it briefly over here. Is uh, So do you kind of access, you take a slightly longer soft tissue tract, a longitudinal approach into the, into the fistula and kind of enter 90 degrees. And then I'll angle my needle from there and go retrograde, put the microwire in. And then uh, actually what I do is, you know, usually those short, say it's a seven French sheath, I'll pass the inner dilator of the micropuncture sheath through the main dilator and they all screw together. And that way you can advance the sheath over the 018 wire and you don't have to do an exchange that way. So then I'll get my retrograde access, do whatever treatment I need to do, et cetera. Flotacil doesn't look good. You know, I've got a seven French sheath in. It's a little bit further away from the anastomosis. What you do then is, is you put the dilator for the, the short sheath back in and pull back the sheath under fluoro with a marking of kind of where you accessed and make sure that obviously you don't lose the tip of the sheath from there. And you can actually straighten out the dilator and use a soft glide wire and get it to kind of retrograde flip and then just advance the dilator in the sheath. And now you've got retrograde access from the same point. And part of the reason why I like to do that is again, minimizes the spots and then also taking that longer sort of soft tissue track 
I find that I can take a nice deep bite on the purse string sutures and it does a really good job because with the purse string, it's not the suture that's doing the job of closing the hole. It's the tissue that you're approximating together. So you get a nice deep bite. You don't have to worry about hitting the fistula or causing any other issues with, with bleeding. Then with those deep bites, usually only two throws, one on either side of, of the sheath. And then I will do, uh, I'll cut the dilator for either the micropuncture or the sheath itself, put that down, tie down a surgeon's knot, have my uh, tech pull as I pull tension on the surgeon's knot, and then I can modulate the tension with that dilator piece. And when you say modulate the tension, you mean just like turning it, like clocking it or yeah, counterclocking it? Yeah, so I'll say it's about a 50-50 shot, ro- rotate it about 90 degrees, and then you can use steri strips to actually secure it to the skin at that point and tell them to remove it at the next dial- after the next dialysis session. Okay. Oh, will they do that for you? That's that's great. Okay. Yeah, I, I just put it in as a nursing communication. They most most often um, will we'll just cut it and remove it. Okay. Yeah. Omar, similar question. Closure. Closure, I'd use a figure of a pressure suture for a realm of closure. I've done the wall and then, but it's just, it's a little cumbersome for the patients. It's bulky. I'll cut the inner dilator of the sheath and put it between the purse string and tie it down. Pass the text, hold pressure like five minutes, and it's pretty good. So. Oh, so the text will just hold pressure for five minutes and then yeah. pull it all and then, oh, very nice. I guess like when you don't heparinize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, uh, I keep it kind of simple sometimes, maybe too simple, but I haven't had any issues, but now that the, the first string and the, and the little dilator is still there, the same thing as Horace, I'll ask the, t- I'll ask the nursing staff, the dialysis centers is, um, remove it, um, when they get their next session. Okay. That's actually great. Reminds me a little anecdote of, uh, one of my attendings in training. I mean, every time we would pull the sheath at the end, he, he would wait on actually tightening it down. And just the amount, like, always, oh, yeah, that's good flow. That's good flow. And then cinch it down. That's a good end point. Yeah. <laughs> hit the, the reason I don't, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The reason I don't like that yeah. is because, like, as you're tensioning down, sometimes, like, you get it to, like, a pinhole. And, like, the blood, you're right, the blood can, like, mm-hmm. hit the ceiling. Like, yeah. the, it, it can yeah. go the distance. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, like, good brisk arterial yeah. flow. All right. The only reason I asked about like the dialysis centers taking it off, our dialysis centers do not work with us and anything that we close with, that's ours, like for us to come back. So it comes back to us. And so really work to like get off something like that, either in recovery or like right after the procedure. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'm sure it varies with where you are, local regional practice patterns and everything. All right. Here's here's a good question. We mentioned the one hour mark. So the one hour mark is like when you really need to start reevaluating, like do we need to think about doing something else? But I guess like Aside from like time, aside from that 60 minute mark, when do you quit on a fistula? And I don't actually mean like during the procedure, but I mean like how often do they come back when you're like, all right, we're declotting this this patient every week. We're declotting this patient every two weeks. Like at what point do you say this needs to go back to surgery for revision or we need to do something different in terms of like a line or something? Omar, over to you. That's a tough question. It's like early on when I started, my patience and my persistence was much higher. And I'd be like, that's all right. Let's go. We're five hours in. Let's keep it going. Let's go. We still got time. You know, more hours. You know, Um, but as you get, as I got more into it, then you kind of realize like you're all, you're limited by yourself. But yeah, I mean, those are, those are good points that you address. Like, okay, when was the last time they came back? We do this last week. Okay. We're doing it again. Or is there just an anatomical, it's like Horace's measure, are the angles bad? Is there some sort of like the way it was implanted or was, was there a transposition of the, of the arteries or the vessels? So those are all good points to take into consideration. And those are things I, I even think about. But I think for me, it's just, it's more of like a gut feeling, honestly. It's like, okay, we've been at this now two, three hours. We get open, it shuts down. Or like, it's just not responding. So there is something, some issue. But I usually, it's kind of a gut feeling, but also it's more about anatomical variabilities too. And I think for me, 
the times I've run to issues where I spent too much time. It was more about angles of the anastomosis. It was about how the, the vein was either raised or trans, transpositioned or, or how it was surgically created. No offense to surgeons, but you know, things change over time with those circuits. Cars, same question. When do you quit? Yeah. I think if somebody's coming back once a week for a declot, there's something else wrong. You know, it doesn't matter how pretty you get it. If I haven't stented and there's a stentable problem that I'm going to give that shot, if it shuts down again after that, then is there something that I'm missing? On the arterial anastomosis side, I think you're really kind of limited because there's only so aggressive you can be. And if the decision is between an elective surgery for a revision versus an emergent surgery for a ruptured anastomosis, you know, I think we all know what we choose for that. So yeah, I think that that three intervention mark w- within a short period of time is is a is a good sort of rule of thumb. Okay, fair. Do you guys? So every, I feel like every young interventionalist has to go through this with a fistula or a declot, where like they get into it and it's like two and a half hours later, you have to like pull them off the table and be like, hey man, look, uh, you just gotta just gotta put in a line. You gotta do something a little different. Um, I call it fistula fever. <laughs> <laughs> like they get in there and like they just all they see is yeah. like all they see is like I gotta get an open well, fistula yeah. some people dread fistulas but as far as like I mean in terms of 11 procedures it's one of the few procedures in IR where you get to do kind of everything there's access there's wire skills there's navigating kind of strictures and narrowing there's plastying there's potentially stenting there's thrombectomy like it's a pretty cool procedure and I think you alluded to it earlier that there's a lot of problem solving involved there's so many different considerations in terms of angles, in terms of projection, in terms of device selection, et cetera, that it really does allow you to sort of flex your wheelhouse. And that's part of the fun of it, right? You're not being successful with this, that, or the other thing. There's always like, well, I could try this or I could try that. And you can go down that rabbit hole. But ultimately, some fistulas are beyond saving. So I think that the exact reason, like you're describing, is kind of a good procedure is why some interventionalists describe it as their dreaded procedure. It's because like every step along that chain is like a little area to get hung up. I mean, sometimes I I like Horace, like I'm always trying to get my wire to flip back up into the brachial artery. Like I want it to go from inflow to outflow. Not everyone does that, but that's kind of my practice. And so sometimes like that can be a little tricky and a little bit fussy of a process. And so like you're like 10 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes. I'm like, golly, that took forever. But then like my clock kind of restarts. I'm like, all right, well, that's all sunk cost. But now it shouldn't take me another, but like, you know, 30 minutes, like once my wires, I always tell my text, we'll do the case. And it's like, I'll get the outflow treated and then I'll pull the arterial plug. I'm like, all right, now we can start the case. And like that just mean like now we got to go and look for the problem to like keep the declot from recurring. But yeah, there's just a lot involved and there's a lot of IR or a lot of interventional muscle that you really can flex. But that's what makes it a cool procedure, but also makes it a tough procedure. All right, this this may be a tough one, but any helpful resources that you've come across that either papers or we've done some podcasts on this topic before, but anything that you've seen that was helpful for you early on, uh, Omar? Honestly, just doing the case. You can read a textbook, you can read articles about it. And like, I mean, it's great to see what people are doing, read and read what they're doing. But until you get in there and just figure out, you know, what you're up against and how you can sort of flex your own skill sets, and kind of just discover what works for you, that's the best way to go about it. So if, if you're getting into it for the first time, it's going to be a bit of a challenge to sort of figure it out. I mean, you can read the articles, but for me, it's just keep doing it. And every time you do another one, you figure something else out. But I think I think experience is the best teacher. Totally agree. Yeah. All right, Horace, now that the best answer has been taken. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, yeah. what's your no, advice? I guess, I guess if, beyond everything that Omar just said, uh, listen to Backtable. There's there's some awesome, awesome uh, actually, episodes uh, on Fisher. Actually, scratch that, Omar. This, this yeah. was the best answer. I was saving this it. Was the I was saving answer. it. Yeah. 
for me, volume was was a very important teacher. But I think that one hour rule is a rule if you're operating as efficiently as possible. And I think one of the keys to really doing that is, again, I've planned my access. I know where I'm going to go. I know what I'm going to be doing. I, I pre-selected what devices I might be treating with. So I'm not spending 30 minutes of that hour waiting for somebody to run and grab this balloon and run and grab that wire and, oh, wait, we need a different sheath, et cetera. And then on top of that, knowing those devices and their compatibilities, right? Like if you got to exchange out for the 145 wire that you started with for a 180 wire, and then you got to change out for, you know, you got to change your seven French sheath to an eight French sheath. And then you realize, oh, wait, you know, this is a, th that 12 millimeter balloon after you've insufflated at one time, it's going to drag much more through the sheath and it's going to make it much harder to get it out. And, you know, all of those little things of knowing what fits, what lengths you need, and where you're going. And, and if you have a good game plan and you've, you've really planned out the procedure, I think that really takes a lot of the time aspect out of it. And that comes with doing cases. Now, you know, you can read everything that you want, but every hospital environment, every equipment, you know, consignment, et cetera, is different. So you do need to know what you have available um, and what works well for you. Totally agree. All right. Anything else, guys? Did we cover it? I, I don't know if you guys talked about this in one of the other episodes, but it's just one of those cool things. It's like a little tidbit is uh, the, the bottle cap closure technique for, uh, you know, when you have prolonged bleeding or that pinhole or whatever. Have you ever tried that? So I've never tried it. I think it I think it got floated in the SIR forum one time. Can you describe it? And like, have you used it successfully? I've never actually used it. So that's why I wanted to pose right. the question. But the, the thought process is basically at a, at, a, at a point of prolonged bleeding. You know, some patient comes in, they've got a stenosis, it's bleeding, you can't get it control. I mean, historical treatment would just be you get a purse string on there, but that can be difficult with a lot of blood. So you take a, you know, like a Coca-Cola bottle cap or whatever, um, not sponsoring this episode. By the way, but, if only uh, we yeah, could get put, them to sponsor yeah, the episode. Yeah, see. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you take that bottle cap and you cover the hole and just hold it there for like 10, 15 minutes. And, and the thought process is, is that blood just collects there and it's static outside the body. It seals and it clots it off. And I've never done it, but I, I you know, I, I, it's one of those things like, hey, that sounds really cool. And I've seen pictures of it. So I wanted to pose the question. Yeah, there are a couple of, a couple of photos photo photo on the Twitter space. So, yeah. So if any of the audience has seen the scene and performed the bottle cap hemostasis trick, please send it over tag back table. We'd love to see it. All right. To our audience, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, but want more, check out the show notes of this episode. We're going to link to some old episodes and we'll link to uh, the Backtable website for that procedure checklist kind of thing I was describing in the uh, preamble. Those show notes, very easy to find, www.backtable.com. For others interested in supporting the show, please like, subscribe, or share this podcast out on social media, or just go old school, tell somebody about it. That old-fashioned word of mouth is helpful as we continue to build this community. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Backtable podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter. Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, Design and Digital Marketing led by Brian Schmitz, Social Media and PR by Anne Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Subli, Administrative Support provided by Jim Lee 
Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 